Everyday consumers are being bombarded with the next big thing in health, wellness, and fitness. What's the future of keeping ourselves healthy, and what's just a passing fad? Hi, I'm Joey Thurman, and if you don't know me, I'm a health and fitness expert and author. I've been fortunate enough to work with celebrities, athletes, C-suite executives, and everyone in between. I've been featured on the Today Show, Live with Kelly and Ryan, Good Morning America, TEDx, and lots of other publications. As part of my ever-increasing thirst for knowledge, which ironically happened after college, I decided to create the Fatter Future podcast. What sets this podcast apart is that I am the guinea pig for these episodes. I don't only want to bring in world-class experts on the show, I want to truly get a first-hand experience what it's like to, say, go on ketamine and trip for my depression, go on a three-day fast drinking nothing but coffee and water for age reversal, eat nothing but plants and get the blood work done to back it up, or even get my brain mapped to see how messed up my head is from getting knocked around playing hockey. Once I try these things, I bring on the experts to talk about my experience and explain it to the audience in a digestible manner and ask the true question. Is it a fad or is it the future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties. Mom and dad always said, eat your fruits and vegetables. That's one thing we can always agree on, right? Well, wrong. According to my next guest, Dr. Sean Baker, he wrote the book, The Carnivore Diet. Yeah, that sounds right. Carnivore diet. Mmm, meat. The guy ate two steaks before he came to have this conversation with me. This is pretty crazy. He says, don't eat vegetables. Don't eat fruit. Wait a minute. I thought fruit and vegetables had vitamins, nutrients, minerals, antioxidants for you. Anti-aging, anti-cancer, anti-all sorts of stuff. Well, Dr. Sean Baker says otherwise. And here's my chat with Dr. Baker. Uh, what's going on? It's Joey Thurman. We have another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Dr. Sean Baker. Man, I don't know if you haven't heard of this guy. You've probably been living under a rock somewhere. Now, you came up with the Carnivore Diet book. It's actually out right now. And what is the Carnivore Diet, man? This, is, this goes completely against everything that we've ever been taught about nutrition. Yeah. So if we look at say the worst diet out there, we would all agree probably standard American diet right. is the worst diet out there. That's we analyze sad. that, standard American diet is actually a plant-based diet. It just so happens that most of those plant-based foods are complete garbage, you know, processed grains, seed oil, sugar, so on and so forth. So actually, Americans eat very little meat. You know, if we look at the actual content, so the average American eats about 2.4 ounces of beef, which is a tiny amount of the diet. And so we're blaming all, a lot of people are blaming all the ills on meat when in fact, we eat very little meat. And so now we have a group of people, tens of thousands of people are saying, wait a minute, let's see what happens when I eat almost all meat or mostly all meat. And right. guess what? They all get healthier and healthier, which is not what we've been testing. We've been testing standard American dieters. And so we're seeing this. And so the way I like to describe a carnivore diet, it's a diet where the focus is on animal products, particularly yep. meat. And you do that and you either eliminate completely plants or you limit them to the degree that you need to improve your health. And, and that's basically the crux of the diet. And so okay. there's people that are 100%, you know, nothing but steaks. And there's people that are, you know, mostly meat, 90% meat, and they eat a little bit of berries and, you know, right. a few things like that. But uh, that that's basically the, the, the carnivore diet in a nutshell. Now, you currently, you're, you've been doing carnivore for how long now? I just passed my three-year mark. And, and why did you start that? Because I was uh, sort of uh, very competitive and uh -huh. I wanted to use, I was looking at it as an athletic advantage. I had already kind of transitioned from kind of a standard American diet to a low-fat plant-based diet to a paleo diet to a low carb to a keto 
and then finally found you know a carnivorous diet. Right. So that's what uh, ultimately gave me both the best health and the best athletic performance. I'm still yeah. a competitive athlete, and uh, you know that's what I'm looking for. And as an athlete, that's that's completely against all, all of the nutrition that we're taught. I mean, even you know uh, the personal trainers and certified strength and conditioning specialists, I say we need to be heavy loaded on carbohydrates because we're going to try to pull from that. What's your response to that, and what did you find with yourself? Well, again, I am an orthopedic surgeon by background. I've yeah. been a lifelong athlete. I've certainly been familiar with the, the, the nutrition literature for years and years. And so I think one of the misconceptions is we're saying you've got to have carbs to perform, and the reality is you've got to have glucose to perform. Mm-hmm. And so what we're finding is, in contrast to maybe a standard ketogenic diet where much of the research has been looked at, on a carnivorous diet, the protein amount is much higher. And I, th- okay. I think you become more efficient at gluconeogenesis, and therefore you have plenty of glucose. At least that's been my experience in okay. my personal athletic endeavors, as well as many, many people I've, I've talked to. And right. so that, I think, is a difference there. And, and plus the protein. You know, I, I don't think anybody would argue there might be some plant-based advocates maybe, yeah. but no one would argue the value of meat in an athlete's diet. I mean, it is, you know, high source of carnitine, creosine, creatine rather, carnosine, you know, zinc, iron, B right. vitamins, so on and so forth, quality protein. Right. So it's, it's clearly a good food. The only other question, advantage of carbohydrates really becomes glucose. And then if you're eating enough protein, you generally make it. And, and, and I think it depends on the sport yeah. too. I think there's nuances with different sports. Okay. So that, I mean, gluconeogenesis is when basically your body is taking that protein and converting it into a form of glucose for readily available energy, correct? Right. So it can either take typically fatty uh, glycerol or it can take certain amino acids mm-hmm. and convert that into glucose. And so that tends to be a demand-driven pl- process. So you right. make as much glucose as your body asks for. So if you are a high-demand glycolytic athlete, your body's going to say, hey, I need more glucose to fuel mm-hmm. this. Your liver can typically do that provided the supply is sufficient. And right. when you're eating a high-protein diet, the supply is sufficient. So what about a person that was, you know, maybe running a marathon or something and they're, they're carb loading? Are they going to hit some sort of like, you know, bonk, as they say, when they're going like 26 miles and they're just trying to rely on no carbohydrates whatsoever? Have you had people that have been, you know, endurance athletes or ultra marathon runners or Spartan racers, anything like that? I've seen a lot of marathon runners mm-hmm. successfully do it on a carnivore diet. In fact, I had a friend in Hawaii just did one yesterday. Yeah. He, he didn't, we didn't have anything. No, he didn't even eat before he went. So, I mean... Yes, you can now. Are you going to run a, a you know a two ten marathon? Maybe not. Sure. That, that that becomes a question there. Okay. And we don't know that yet. Right. So that's something. I mean, I've seen a number of world class athletes. There's even some Olympians right now that are pursuing a carnivore diet, and that's we'll probably see that in the 2020 Olympics. Yeah. These guys are, you know, they're setting PRs wow. as, as carnivores, as Olympic athletes in various sports. So uh, what's the difference? I mean, you mentioned keto. What's the difference between carnivore and keto? Just the the fat ratios. Well, I mean, I think that the way people define a ketogenic diet is a diet that produces ketosis. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that. You can be on a ketogenic diet, drinking corn oil and eating, you know, sucralose, right? Yeah. I mean, you can do that. Right. So, is that healthier or... And take an expensive, like, high body, high Right, or you can take some yeah. MCT oil or, yeah. or, or uh, you know, supplement with exogenous ketones. A carnivore diet is pretty specific. It's basically you're eating basically animal products. You're not eating really any... There's no real room for junk food in there. Right. And, you know, if you think about an evolutionary argument, and some people argue whether that's relevant or not, but I would say, is it plausible that early man was eating a lot of big animals? I think there's pretty good evidence to show that. Those animals were tend to be fattier. I mean, these big mammoths, the fat content of those animals was very, very big. Right. So that's probably 
a reason why, why humans were eating a more fat-based diet that were probably in ketosis. They clearly were not drinking MCT oil or <laughs> yeah. you know, eating products to right. put them into ketosis. You know, those things didn't exist. Yeah, I don't years. think they had the, the, the factories and they were developing those when they were trying to, when they were trying to hunt the woolly mammoth. <laughs> that yeah. probably didn't happen. All right, now, essentially, you are a, a proponent of strictly eating meat. Now, there's going to be a ton of people that are coming out saying like, wait a minute, you, you need these nutrients, you need vegetables and fruits and antioxidants and, you know, and phytonutrients and all sorts of different things. What's your stance on that? When you, there, there's got to be people that keep coming at you, coming at you and saying that this carnivore diet, this is going to kill you, this is dangerous, you're going to have all these sort of different biomarkers that are out of whack. Sure. Okay. So there's a couple of ways you can talk about this point. So first of all, we know throughout history there have been uh, populations that have survived on carnivore or carnivore-ish diet. You know, mm-hmm. we can look at a lot of people like using Inuit. I like to use the Sami population in northern Scandinavia. We mm-hmm. can look at Maasai. We can look at Gauchos. We can look at Mongols. And they did not have any real chronic disease, evidence of chronic disease, at least when we first observed them. Yeah. Once they got introduced to the Western food, then they got the chronic diseases. But they were without vitamin deficiencies. I mean, there's all kinds of evidence to document that stuff. And so we can use that. Now, if we look at nutrition in general and we say, well, you need phytonutrients, you need fiber, so on and so forth. Well, I would say if we look at biochemistry, and and this is unquestionable, what we need as a human being to survive from our nutrition, we need essential amino acids, Mm -hmm. we need essential fats, we need vitamins and minerals. That's it. There's no phytonutrient. There's no fiber requirement. Now, there's people who say that based on epidemiology, that people that eat more fruits and vegetables and phytonutrients and fiber tend to do better. But the relative risks on those things are tiny. This is the whole problem with nutritional studies in general. They're just very, very weak evidence. And people people that are in the field will say, well, that's the best we have. And so therefore, we need to go with these recommendations. And my take on that is, well, it's still crappy evidence. And so it doesn't matter how you pack it, how you interpret it, how many meta-analysis you do on crappy evidence it's still crappy, weak evidence. And so it's like if I were to tell you, I said, hey, Joe, we're going to board this plane right now. And you get on there and you notice that, you know, the landing gear is broken and you notice that the wing is starting to fall off. And then you look in the cockpit and the the pilot's drunk. (laughs) And you say... I don't know what I want to get on that. Plane. I, man, I'm, I'm not even stepping foot inside. Right, but they're going to say, well, that's the best we can afford. Yeah. And, and the problem is these people in, in the nutrition science will say, well, that's actually good evidence. And you're like, that's not very good evidence. Right. And so the fundamental problem is, and you've got people arguing plant-based, meat-based, you know, Mediterranean-based, paleo-based, they're all arguing about extremely, extremely weak evidence. And so what I say is, like we talked about earlier, we can't even decide what diet makes us not be fat, right? right? So we're arguing about something that we can observe right in front of us, right. and we can't decide on that. But now we're saying, we're going to tell you what diet's going to make you have cancer in 20 or 30 years, mm-hmm. years based on you know even weaker evidence. Right. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And so all those counter arguments, you know, I'm just saying you don't have any strong evidence to convince me that way. And so what I see is people go on a diet that for 20 years they've had depression or diabetes or autoimmune disease or Crohn's disease mm-hmm. or whatever that stuff goes away. You know, they're sitting there saying, my God, my suicidal depression, it's no longer there. I'm not haunted by this stuff every day. Or my digestion's the best it's ever been in years. Or I'm getting stronger. I feel 20 years younger. A lot of people dismiss that. They say, well, it's only anecdotal evidence. Let's look at the the weak relative risk epidemiology instead. You know, and there's some, I don't want to be completely misrepresent the nutrition side. There are some randomized control trials. But again, these show you biomarkers. Well, this diet made your cholesterol go up a little bit, or this mark, this one made your whatever change. 
Then they say, but that is associated in epidemiology studies to show you that it causes greater risk of heart disease. So right. we're, we're just one order magnitude removed from the epidemiology stuff. Yeah. So it's just kind of silly to argue this stuff. I tell people, look, if you are unhealthy today, and you know you can assess that. I mean, we, we have this sort of belief that we can't tell if we're healthy or not. I mean, I would argue you can look in the mirror and say, hey, I just lost weight. I no longer have depression. I wake up with an erection every morning. Right. You know, my skin is clear. My digestion's good. And my joints stop hurting. I would argue that's a pretty good metric to say if you're healthier. So you don't They're, think you need some, you know, big 20, 30 page blood test result to, you know, confirm that. I don't think so. I mean, I think the problem, and we have, and, and nowadays, you know, for good or bad, you know, we have access to every test imaginable, and there's more every day, right? Mm-hmm. I can go to the LabCorp request right. and order $10,000 worth of labs on me, yep. and then what do I do with that information, yep. you know? You've got to be able to put it in clinical context. And there's some easy, just clinically related contextual things that we can do that don't cost a gazillion dollars that are easily accessible to anybody. And I think they're far more helpful. I mean, I don't really care if my homocysteine is nine versus six if I feel like crap. Right. I mean, I just don't want to feel like crap. Right. And so I think that's what we have to we have to focus on again. I, yeah, I mean, that, that seems like a good enough gauge. But what happens when you people talk about having like disrupting your microbiome and not having enough fiber and having, you know, short chain fatty acid reduction? I mean, that you, the list goes on and on of all these things we keep getting told. Like, how do we just break through that in your opinion? Well, I mean, if we if we want to have the microbiome discussion. So first of all, let's realize that we started researching cholesterol 1920s. Uh-huh. It's 100 years later. We still haven't sorted that out. We're still looking at subfractions and oxidized versus glycated. And we, we can't, you know, is it ApoB or is it the LPA little one? Right. We're still figuring that out. The microbiome is many orders of, of magnitude more complicated. There are billions of little different microbes in there and different concentrations and different ratios. And yeah. to think we have a handle on that system right. is absurd. So if we're being prescriptive about what's the best microbiome, I would say you're completely out of your element, you're completely crazy. I would say that the optimal microbiome for a human or a particular individual person is a microbiome you have when you are healthy. It doesn't matter how many, you know, bacteroides or firmicutes concentration uh-huh. is there, but to address the point about short-chain fatty acids. Right. So a lot of people are concerned about short-chain fatty acids. We know that ingesting fiber, there's bacteria that will convert that into short-chain fatty acids. People typically talk about butyrate, but there's things like acetate and propionate that, that are also liberated. So we also know that besides fiber, amino acids can turn into short-chain fatty acids from the bacteria. So you can get it from amino acids. There's okay. methyl butyrate that's liberated. Also, you know, if we know about ketones, the main ketone that body that floats around in our blood is something called beta-hydroxybutyrate. Uh-huh. And the butyrate molecule from beta-hydroxybutyrate, it's only one hydroxyl molecule away. It's easily reversible. It's a very easily reverse reaction. So if you have beta-hydroxybutyrate in your system, those colon cells can easily get butyrate that way. So, But more importantly, what is happening to people with irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, also colitis, and other inflammatory bowel disease when they go on a carnivore diet, it gets better. Yeah. So to tell me that your gut health is getting worse when you're clinically getting better doesn't pass the common sense test. Right. And so we, we tend to forget about common sense when we're talking about these things. And we're just like, well, we got to study about some obscure thing that we don't really understand about and your actual health doesn't really matter. And that's what we're telling people. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a valid argument. Now, and people talk about, you know, having these different things that, like, we, we touched on the cancer thing, and but you have, more, like, antioxidants and, and not cooking your meat at, like, high temperatures. We become carcinogenic to the cells. What's your response to that? First of all, I would strongly argue that we have no significant evidence to show that red meat causes cancer, uh-huh. right? So, there was a huge study, and people think this is controversial, done by the Nutrix organization. October 1st came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine, six papers. 
they basically concluded based on looking at the most comprehensive review on red meat that's ever been done, looking yeah. at most papers, and truly looking at the evidence in something called the grade classification. So the grade classification is something that a guy named Gordon Guide and others put together to really critically look at evidence, right? And it has a high rigor. It's like, we're going to put a high standard for our evidence that we're going to accept. When they use that classification on all the red meat data, they said there's no evidence or there's no significant evidence whatsoever to show you that red meat causes cancer, heart disease, or any other problems. And so that was obviously widely contested by the people that have said, you know, we like using our weak evidence to support that. Right. So there's really no convincing evidence that red meat causes cancer. So any mechanistic sort of way that you want to claim it does, whether it's TMAO, new 5GC, heme iron, you know, uh-huh. any of these things, any of these things, heterocyclic amines, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, it doesn't matter because it doesn't cause cancer in the end. And at the end of the day, I mean, literally, if we look at, if we believe fruits and vegetables are great for us, you know, you yeah. can look at Bruce Ames' paper from 1990 when he looked at naturally occurring pesticides that are in everyday plants, mm-hmm. you know, things we eat all the time, something like 27 to 52 of those foods that were tested, plant foods, were carcinogenic in rats. And so we could say, well, cabbage is carcinogenic, don't eat cabbage, based on the same level of evidence. So we don't have really strong evidence to support that. And so, you know, the way we detoxify, you know, heterocyclic amines, for instance, is the same way we detoxify sulforaphane, which you hear people like Rhonda Patrick talking about that, extolling the wonderful virtues of sulforaphane. It's going to help kids with autism and help us with inflammation because it upregulates our defense system, something called, you know, it ends up with more glutathione. Well, uh-huh. the same system that detoxifies that detoxifies heterocyclic amines from meat. So it's like you're not giving an even okay. balance on this. So it's, if it's bad for you because it causes you know, because you think it causes cancer for meat, which it doesn't, then it also has to be bad for you from sulforaphane. But it's the same hormetic effect. Okay. Now, you, you said that plants, you know, are, are going to have some of these pesticides, like, like they talk about like oxalates and lectins. People say the kale and spinach and all these sort of different things are so good for you. And we're pounding kale smoothies and kales and everything now. I mean, we're in Beverly Hills. So, I mean, I don't know if you can go to a restaurant without having some sort of kale thing because it's just supposed to be this is magical fix. What are these lectins and oxalates that are these plants? Essentially, I think Dr. Stephen Gundry did a book on, uh, sure. was it the plant paradox right. as well, right? Yeah, so I mean, and this is where a lot of people misconstrue what I think, what I say about it. I, I think there are plant chemicals. Phytonutrient was a marketing term. I think some people say the soybean industry created that mm-hmm. to, to kind of bolster their product, but they're phytochemicals. You know, they're not good or bad. For some people, an oxalate can be a problem. We know it's the number one cause of kidney stones are oxalates. Mm-hmm. We know that people can get renal failure from oxalates. And it depends on the dose for some people. Some yeah. people are more sensitive to the others, and it may have to have to do with gut permeability and the microbiome. Some of these compounds, you know, goitrogens, you know, broccoli may be good for you for one reason, but it has goitrogen, so it may be messing up your thyroid. So there's a whole host of compounds, and I would just say, let's not paint a halo on anything. Mm-hmm. Let's just say, hey, this is food personally, you know, because I don't think the nutrition science can help you with what you need to eat. You need to personally determine, is eating a bunch of kale smoothies a good thing or a bad thing? I, right. did, I did those things too. I mean, I used to drink them. I would sit there and choke them down and say, this stuff is awful, foul, tasting stuff. <laughs> First time I, I had did, kale, man, I'm like, oh man, Yeah, I mean, you, you got you to pour so much sugary stuff in there to make it palatable. <laughs> and bananas and, you know, uh-huh. honey and apple juice and whatever, you know, trying to make it palatable. And just like, is this really good for me? Do I yeah. have to? Would early man have subjected himself to that knowing nothing about nutrition? Do you think about it? If you and I were cast back 100,000 years ago and all we had was spears, because that's all the technology we basically had at that time, or yeah. like go get some food, would you go there and say, I'm going to eat these bitter tasting leaves, which by the way have no calories. They're not going to give me any calories. Sure. They're not going to fuel my, my energy needs. Or would you take this big, giant, fat animal, which by the way, we could kill 
easily. Mm -hmm. This is documented that even as far as Homo erectus figured out how to kill elephants with just a spear, and they did it on an industrial scale. So it's not hard to kill an elephant. You think about it, elephants do not run from humans. They just stand there and look at you. I've been to Africa, and when you come up to a bunch of elephants, they just turn and look at you like, what are you going to do? Because you're you're puny, you're you're relatively puny. But once we developed this technology, and particularly as we left Africa and went into Europe and Asia, and these elephants didn't know what hit them, because at least all these small animals that they're used to not being messed with, and then all of a sudden they got a spear in their side. They were everywhere. The abundance of megafauna was, you know, orders of magnitude from what it is now. So you you can imagine a world is teeming with giant animals and a relatively small human population. And we're like, what are you going to choose? You're going to choose steaks? Or kale, which doesn't taste very good, right? You know, so I mean, I think that's what that's what was going on. Okay, so but if it were the size of the mouse, those those elephants would have been running right away. <laughs> Maybe I don't, I don't know. I don't know if they're really scared of mice. Maybe. Yeah. And now, what about? I mean, people always go back to say like our ancestors ate this, or they did this, or this is how they live. But we, they had a much shorter lifespan, right? That's also incorrect. So they had a population lifespan was shorter, but that's all conflicted by the infant mortality rate. So if 50% of your children die before age of five, then your population goes down quite a bit. So if you have the one average. guy that lives to 80 and one guy that dies at birth, the average population is 40. Sure. So you don't count these people that have lived to 80. So there's a lot of evidence in the archaeologic record of skeletons of early man that, that show they clearly were living into their 60s and 70s and beyond, likely. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, people mistake that because they think that the infant mortality rates, and they look at that and they see, well, they only live to like 25 and 30. In fact, right. Lifespan actually went down once we, we adopted farming. Once we adopted agriculture, our, our lifespan went down. Our quality of life got worse. You know, I don't know if you know this, but at about 10,000 years ago, you know, human beings saw about a six-inch drop in overall height. We saw continued you know, weakening of our bones. We really? saw our brain size shrunk by 200 cc's. Our teeth got very bad. And this is because we went away from a hunter-gatherer, you know, and I would argue primarily hunting-based lifestyle to a agricultural based lifestyle and so that's very clear you know you talk to any anthropologist and they yeah. look at the two skeletons they can see it's very clear so we were all giants walking around now we're just a bunch of small people well i mean if you go back so the, the tallest people on the planet right now are people living in central europe like the croatians and the, and the dutch uh, and their average height for a male is about six foot right and, and they've got people that are six seven six right, eight six nine, right. but the average is about six foot yeah that's the tallest population we have right now in modern times if we go back thirty thousand years ago and we look at this population called the gravedians who were specialized mammoth hunters, and they lived in Central Europe. Their average height 30,000 years ago was six foot two. Okay. So they were two inches taller than the giantest people we have today. So they probably had guys walking around who were seven feet tall. Wow. But then we see the farming population. We look at some of the ancient Mayans and whatnot, and they, these guys are like four foot six. So a huge difference to pace depending on nutritional quality. Interesting. So let's talk about lifespan a little bit. And you've got all these blue zones, and people always talk about blue zones, and they've got these general where they're having lots of, you know, they're having fish, and they're having lots of fruits and vegetables and legumes. And that legumes is one of the things that they've, they've tried to, like, say that all of these things these people have in common. Is there any areas that essentially that are living longer than the other the blue zones that are particularly carnivore? Yeah, absolutely. So... Let's talk about the blue zones real quick. Yeah. So there was a recent study came out, and it talked about the blue zones. They said the reason the data on the blue zones, the, the most probable reason the blue zones people live long is because these are areas where there's very poor record keeping. So it's most likely fraud or error. That's yeah. what just came out. They looked at these things. So additionally, when we look at, say, Okinawa, because we often hear from the plant-based folks that uh-huh. you know, the Okinawa people lived on purple sweet potatoes and very little meat, and they lived to be really long. 
So when we look about when that data was collected, it was collected in 1949. This is when they did the initial data set. So what happened in Okinawa right before 1949? Do you remember? Yeah, they, yeah. So, so World War II, yeah, right? Yeah. So we decimated, yep. the Americans decimated Okinawa. We killed something like 30% of the population. Yeah. And more importantly, from a nutritional standpoint, they used to have about 130,000 pigs on that island. We knocked that down to like 700 pigs. So we basically wiped out their food supply. Huh. And so what happened over the next decade or so, you know, people were shuttling pigs in from Hawaii back to Okinawa, the Japanese that lived in Hawaii, right. they built that back up. And so Okinawa is actually known as the island of pork. So the data they collected showing their plant base was just a small snapshot in time okay. when they were decimated. But additionally, if we go to places like Hong Kong, so if you guys Google Hong Kong life expectancy, what you will find is Hong Kong leads the world in life expectancy for the second year in a row. They're the longest lived people on the planet, right? And then go and Google Hong Kong meat consumption. And what you'll find is Hong Kong eats more meat than anyone in the world. They eat four times as much as they do in the UK. They eat way more than we eat in the US. They eat on average, it's like a pound and a half of meat a day wow. in Hong Kong. So that's quite a bit. They live longer than anyone on the planet. They also have the highest IQ of anyone on the planet, which is also sort of curious. Yeah. If we go to Iceland. Iceland has either the number one or one of the top numbers of centenarians among males. Okay, so if you're going to live to 100, go to live in Iceland. And, yeah. and what do guys in Iceland grow up eating? Well, guess what? Guess what doesn't grow in Iceland? Mangoes don't grow there. Bananas don't grow there. It's a frozen rock. Huh. They grew up on what was available to them, which was fish from the sea. They imported. They have lamb and they have some cattle. They have dairy. And they have a little bit of grain, which is imported from Denmark, which arguably was questionable if they fed it to the cows or not. But they have a very much meat-heavy diet, low in fruits and vegetables, and they outlive everybody else. So there's plenty yeah. of examples okay. of these people that live long that are on meat-based diets. Now, when someone wants to start a carnivore diet, and I actually I did this for a couple of weeks, and really... My entire life, I've almost done this because I, I hated vegetables as a kid. My mom, to get me to eat broccoli, she took Velveeta cheese, if you will, and poured it on top of the broccoli, and she tried to get me to eat it, and I would just sit there. I'm like, I don't want to eat this. I don't want to eat it. I would, I would sit there all, all, all night long, and I would literally just eat the meat, and that's what I was doing. I was having that and, like, like fake bacon, the sizzlings, and all, all this sort of shit, and I did this for a couple of weeks, and the first several days, I started to feel a very, like, weak and kind of groggy, what was I experiencing there? Well, I mean, I don't know what your reference that was before, but, you know, there's a, there's a shift, you know, yeah. like some people call it keto flu. Well, the same thing happens yeah. when, you, when you go from more of a glucose-based metabolism to more of a fat-based metabolism. Yeah. I think that's probably what it was. A lot of people find that, it, that because, you know, meat is so satiating, they mm -hmm. just can't eat very much. Yeah. And so it takes a while. Like for me, I can... I often, I'll eat four pounds a day. I'll eat sometimes seven pounds of meat a day. I you mean, you just, said you had two steaks before you came Yeah, out. I like two and a half pounds for breakfast. And that's just <laughs> typical morning for me. So, I mean, I that's, get, that's well, normal. but I mean, because I'm, I'm using a lot, I'm extra right. pretty hard. Right. And so a lot of people, they just find that they lose weight very easily. And, yeah. and put, the calories in, calories out, people say, well, that's the only reason people get better on a carnivore diet. And there's some truth to that, that yeah. it's harder to eat excessive calories. And so I'm, I'm just going to go on a philosophical thing about diets in, in general. So there's yeah. two things that will make you fail a diet. One, the food sucks because you're not going to do it, right? right? The food sucks. And number two, you're hungry all the time. So if you got to walk around, if you got to tell me I got to eat crappy food and I got to be hungry all the time, guess how long I'm going to stick with that diet? Yeah. Not very long. So with a carnivore diet, for most people, not everybody, for most people, a big, fat, juicy ribeye, maybe some eggs and bacon, that tastes pretty damn good. Yeah. And it tends to be satiating so you're not hungry all the time. So you just basically naturally 
lose weight. And a lot, the biggest problem a lot of people have is they, they can't eat enough. They're like, I want to put on muscle. Right. And they're like, I just can't eat enough. And I'm like, you just got to step up your game, man. Yeah. You got to eat like it's your job. You got uh-huh. to eat till it hurts. You yeah. got to put on muscle, right? Just give a little um, smack in the face. Tell them, yeah. to, tell them to eat that steak. I, I did two and a half pounds this morning, man. What the hell? Exactly. Okay. So after a few days, I mean, uh, my body, I felt like I started getting used to it. And then I was leaning out a little bit. I mean, you could you could argue that like obviously less carbohydrates, so there's going to be less water sticking to me. And then when I competed in fitness competitions, sometimes that last like week or so, it was no fat. It was nothing. I even cut out all the fiber. So I've kind of done this off and on for right. my entire, and I got incredibly, incredibly lean. But for me, it was like going to be very hard to maintain that and sustain that. If I was to carry on with that past a couple of weeks, what is going to happen to my body or anybody else that's, you know, wants to take this on? Yeah. So I think, you know, we have to put it in context. So if we're talking about a fitness competitor, you yeah. are trying to achieve a non-physiologic level of body fat. In ancient humans, I would argue we're not fitness competitors. Yeah, they got down body- to like 3%. Yeah, they weren't bodybuilding. Yeah, that, that that's, not a, that's not a healthy place yeah, to be. Yeah, that's right? not okay. Don't do that. <laughs> so, I mean, when, when, you, when you do that, I mean, to get to that level, you have to, you know, Cut out energy out of your diet. You got mm-hmm. to live on protein and cut out energy, right? So that's why any bodybuilder, they, they go on lean proteins and they might stuff some vegetables in there for bulk, for fiber to right. kind of provide some satiety. I'm aware of quite a few people, fitness competitors, bikini competitors, you know, bodybuilder guys that are using a carnivore diet for a cut. And they're saying it's the easiest cut they've ever done. It's yep. not that it still doesn't suck at the end, but it's, right. it's much easier than other times. So if that's your goal, but I think... From an athletic performance standpoint, I think it takes realistically about three months to adapt to this. Just okay. in my experience, for a normal person just doing the diet, it, you might adapt in two or three weeks. But okay. if you're going to push your body, because when you're an athlete, you're really kind of pushing the edges of physiology. Right. And so that's why we're seeing with these, you know, it's interesting with the sort of to kind of go into this other topic of, of mm-hmm. this vegan thing. We're seeing these high level athletes try to do it on a vegan diet, and right. we're seeing a lot of them struggling, a lot of them quitting, a lot of them getting injured. And we're, you know, Cam Newton would be a good example of one. It's not that the diet causes injury, but I would argue that it may have made him more susceptible to it. It may have made him not heal as fast. Right. And I think that's certainly occurring. And so we're seeing, you know, it's, it's always good to see what extreme levels of athleticism does to a diet. Yeah. And you can kind of see, well, this is where the, this sort of breaks down. And somebody would argue on a carnivore diet, I just can't get enough carbohydrate. And mm-hmm. I think, and again, in the book, I talk about that. I said, well, man, you know. Throw in a little bit of carbohydrate if you need it, right. but you know, be objective about what it does for you. So you're okay with people adding some broccoli or berries or whatever to it? Right. I'm okay. Look, I'm not dogmatic about it. I'm not yeah. trying to save the broccoli or save the tomatoes. <laughs> I'm about doing what works for you. Yeah. Now, again, there are some people that do the carnivore diet that become very religious about it. And they're yeah. like, if you have one molecule or whatever, you know, you're, 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 I don't do that stuff. Right. I just say, look, find what works for you. In my experience, a lot of meat is very helpful for health, for athletic performance. And for some people, it's 100%. Some people, it's 90%. Some mm-hmm. people, it's 70%. But I think, again, the standard American diet is, by all intents and purposes, a plant-based diet. And don't let people fool you to try to say it's a meat-causing disease. When we are on a grain-based, you know, high-carb, sugar, seed oil diet... What is, I mean, especially you know, the, the plant-based is huge right now. Mm-hmm. What would somebody that's plant-based, what are they asking you? What are they telling you that that's wrong about the carnivore diet? Well, I mean, I think their biggest, well, you know, what they'll do is they'll point to the literature and say, we don't have any data on a carnivore diet. Yeah. And I'll say that's true. I mean, there are some studies on a carnivore We can go back to look at Stefanson's work. There were six studies done in the 1928, and they all show they were totally fine, right? Yeah. And then there's some studies out of Europe where they're showing case reports of Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, type 1 diabetes, uh, glioblastoma, brain cancer, 
being approved with the coronavirus. So there are studies going on, and there will be a study coming out of Harvard with David Ludwig that I'll be sort of helping to facilitate happening later, you know, towards the end of this year and early next year. Uh-huh. So we will have data, but they'll point to these, uh, you know, American Heart Association or American Diabetes Association or some of these associations that have said that, you know, a, a plant-heavy diet, not a vegan diet, but a plant-heavy diet seems to be the, the right way to go. But again, they're using this relative risk, weak evidence. And, and I, I just say that's not good enough. Again, this is a drunk pilot with a broken plane right. that they're saying, well, you need to fly the drunk plane. And then if you do that, then you agree with us. But okay. more often than not, they'll get into ethics and the environment. And that is kind of where they're really coming. Because a lot of people do this because it's like, well, maybe I'm not doing it for my health. Maybe it's not the most healthy thing for me to be on a plant-based diet. Some believe it is. I would argue it's not. But then they'll say, well, I think I'm saving the environment. So therefore, I'm going to do this. And I think there's a lot of I don't know if you want to go into that, but there's a lot of yeah. Are they saving? Are they saving the environment by uh, you know just having plants? Generally, no, not to any impactful way. I mean, that is uh, that's the bottom line with yeah. this. Now, I don't know if you want to have a discussion. Yeah, about I mean, that. I mean, because that's what a lot of those. I mean, so some people will say they're plant based, and some people won't say vegan because vegan right. is a little more ethics right. based. Right. Right. And talk about like greenhouse gases and, and the pollution, and then then we're just we're over farming all right. of the, all these animals, and they want to save the environment. Uh, what's the response? I mean, okay, yeah. So this is this is kind of a lengthy topic. But I would say, first of all, in order to rehab our our agricultural system, plant and animal, we are certainly doing some damage to the environment. Much of it is really depleting our soils. I mean, we're seeing the FAO says we've got 60 harvests left, potentially. So we've got 60 years of soil, and then we can't grow any more food. So that's a concern. And so the only way to rebuild soils is with ruminant animals grazing and grazing appropriately in, in a well-pastured fashion. So there's something called adaptive multipatic grazing. And so what you do is you take, you know, 100 cows and you stick them in a pile, you know, in a big herd, and you have munch in this field for a day, and then you move them to the next field. And you do that, and you do that, and you rotate them all year round. And what happens is you put all this carbon back in the soil. And guys like Will Harris out of White, White Oaks Pasture just, has just demonstrated that you can actually return more carbon to the ground than you emit which is a net win. No other system can do that. That's the only way we can rebuild the soil and mitigate you know, any carbon damage. But if we think that greenhouse gases are the, the big concern, and that's what seems to be the big concern sure. right now. There's other arguments about water and antibiotic usage and stuff like that, but I'll touch on the greenhouse gases for now. So if we, you and I live in the United States, and most people watching this show live in a Western developed country, I yep. assume. And so if we look at these places, like the United States, because I have good data on that, if we look at the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, when they look at the greenhouse gases in the United States, we'll see that cattle produce 1.9% of our greenhouse gases. That includes methane because it's converted to carbon equivalent units. Transportation is like 28%. The energy sector is like 27%. The industrial section is about something like 26%. So that, that 80% of our greenhouse gases are coming from energy and industry and transportation. Yeah. 1.9% is coming from cows. And so you look at what's the bigger number here, guys. So some people say, well, still it's 1.9. So if you want plant-based, you could reduce that. You know, plant agriculture is responsible for 5% of our greenhouse gases here in the United States. And so you can argue that, you know, maybe not eating as many plants could, could have a benefit as well, or just not eating as much in general. So right, right like you just say, I'm just not going to eat as much. I'm yeah. going to eat less calories. That's going to do something. We also know that the healthcare sector provides 10% of our greenhouse gases. And so if you get go on a carnivore diet and you get off all your diabetes meds and you lose weight and you no longer go to the doctor, have to go to the doctor, guess what? You're no longer contributing to that 10% mm-hmm. greenhouse gas emissions yeah. from the healthcare sector. You know, people will talk about methane. There's two ways to look at methane. The way that's probably the most accurate 
is called the top-down method. So there's methane that's in the atmosphere, and we can calculate where that came from, and there's methane that's liberated from the ground, and we can calculate some of that. So what they do is they'll say, well, we know cows burp and they make methane, so we can measure that. And we know that cars have a little bit in their tailpipe, perhaps, and we know that the wetlands have some, and we know that rice has some, but we can't really measure it all. Termites make it. You know, the ocean makes it. We can't really accurately measure what's going up. Yeah. So the only, only thing we look at is what we can measure, which would be the cows. When we look in the atmosphere, NASA did a study on this two years ago, and they said we can look at what's in the atmosphere, where that methane came from, because there's isotopes. You know, there's mm-hmm. different isotopes of the carbon molecules. And they can say, well, almost none of it's coming from the cows. And, and because it's on a 10-year cycle, basically, you know, and where, whereas carbon dioxide is up in the atmosphere for a thousand plus years. And so it's very much not a uh, accurate comparison. You know, the, the uh, FAO said that the livestock was responsible for 14% of the world's greenhouse gases. It's based on a life cycle assessment. So life cycle assessment means we measure everything, little step along the way to making a steak. You know, feeding the cow, watering the cow, transporting the cow, packaging the cow, you know, all the products that go into it. Right. And what they do is they compare it to transportation, and they only measure the tailpipe emissions. They don't measure building the car, huh. maintaining the roads. So it's not, it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. Yeah. It's apples-to-oranges. And so when they say 14% for cows, 14% for transportation, that's not really accurate. If you want to actually look at the direct emissions from animal agriculture worldwide, it's 5%. Transportation is 14%. So these numbers are all being used in a very disingenuous fashion. Yeah, that's a fair argument. Now, you said you're doing a study in Harvard. And speaking of Harvard, I went out and interviewed David Sinclair, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote Lifespan. And in his book, he talks about, and there's, there's other you know longevity experts that talk about this, and he says that meat is murder to your cells because you're going to increase that mTOR pathway and elevated mTOR pathways, which can happen from you know obviously eating meat and then working out too, is going to decrease your lifespan. What's your response yeah, to that? Yeah, so that's a... There's a little bit of truth to that. So we do know that protein will activate mTOR, mm-hmm. right? So we know that. And we do know that animals that spend a long time in protein-restricted diets will live a long time. And we know that from animals. There's no human data right now to show yeah. that. There's a study that Walter Longo did where he kind of misrepresented the NHANES data to try to show that the people that restricted protein in middle life live longer. But if they increase their protein later in life, they live longer mm-hmm. and shorter if they restricted it in middle life. So, But when we look at how mTOR is sort of upregulated, there are a couple things that drive mTOR up. One is protein, one is insulin, and one is just calories in general, right? Mm-hmm. So the question then becomes, what can you do to stimulate mTOR? Well, you can eat some protein, sure. You can eat calories, so you can get calories from a lot of sources. You can right. carbohydrates, you can get calories, and you can you can elevate insulin, and you can elevate insulin pretty decent with with carbohydrates in your diet. Yeah. We also know that mTOR is it needs a couple different inputs to fully turn it on. Uh, we also know that mTOR is upregulated in different tissues at differential times. And so, while if you exercise and eat protein, you you stimulate the mTOR regulation in your muscle, but maybe right. not in your liver, maybe not in your peripheral fat. Yeah. So that's a good thing. So I would say if you're doing a diet that has animal protein, you should probably be training as well. Okay. And we know that people that do that, or at least animal studies where that's being done, those animals also live long. Okay. So if you couple high protein with training, you're going to live long. Or you can do low protein, but guess what happens to those rats? They become cachectic. They become sarcopenic. They become mm. skinny and frail. So they but they, 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 kind of, they kind of live a long time, but they're frail. Yeah. Or you can live a long time and be strong and robust. And I, given the choice between the two, I know which one I would choose. 
Yeah, give me a long time and still have abs, man. Well, yeah, I have leg muscles. Yeah. So like I said, this is, a, this is sort of a partial information out there when yeah. it's far more nuanced than we think. We're, there's probably going to be more things we find about uh, mTOR. So right. I, would, I would refer to a guy named Keith Barr to talk about okay. more details on that. All right. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, could you do something like maybe if you're on a carnivore diet, maybe go for a, a longer fast period if you're really worried about mTOR and then when you, you extend your breakfast or cut off the dinner later? Right. So what I was saying... For most people that do a carnivore diet, like I eat twice a day, uh-huh. there's usually a period of eight or nine hours between breakfast and dinner and another 13, 14 hour period before dinner and breakfast. Yeah. And so I just naturally have this period of fasting, this autophagy so generated period of time. Restricted window. So I have that happening. And that's natural. That's yeah. just what occurs in my appetite. And I think that is probably consistent with how human beings operate. Can you imagine if you, know, you lived 50,000 years ago and you had to eat every two hours? Yeah. I mean, that would be inconvenient, particularly when you're a nomad. I mean, it's like, hey, get, whoa, whoa, stop, guys. We got to eat. I mean, we, let's break down a camp and eat every two hours. <laughs> Not likely to happen. Yeah. So I don't think that's consistent with how humans are as species. And we humans have been on the planet. Not necessarily in the form of Homo sapiens, which goes back three, 400,000 years. But humans, back to Homo habilis, three million years. Yeah. And so we've been doing probably infrequent meals of probably a lot of animal food for as long as we've been on the planet. That is our natural state. And to suggest that we now need to eat multiple times a day a diet of synthetic food for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, the factory, Beyond Meat, you know, supplement bars, it's right. just inconsistent with the right. normal human diet. How would you explain somebody, what about uh, like children or pregnant women? Would you have them on the carnivore diet? So with pregnant women, I'm aware of many, many women that do this successfully fine. Uh-huh. I don't think there's a major issue with that. I do think, you know, you should tell your obstetrician, they may want to supplement things like folate because mm-hmm. on paper, a carnivore diet could be low in folate. You can get around that by eating more liver potentially. Yeah. I think that uh, I wouldn't do it mid-pregnancy, you know, because to make a dramatic shift, you're going to have all these sort of fluid and electrolyte shifts, and that might be too stressful. So you might want, if you're going to do it mid-pregnancy, you'd have to sort of slowly ramp your way up to it. You know, you wouldn't just drop in from eating a high-carb diet to nothing. I wouldn't suggest it that way. As far as kids go, there are children that do that. I mean, there are societies where children live on nothing but meat. I think it's probably likely completely fine. My own children, I prioritize meat. They get meat or some kind of animal product, meat, eggs or something, pretty much every meal. They eat it all. I make sure they eat plenty of that. That's where I want them to get their nutrition okay. from. And then if they want something beyond that, a piece of fruit, some vegetables, they'll, they'll eat fruit. The vegetables are sure. like, eh, no one really wants that. <laughs> so I give yeah. them fruit. I give yeah. them a little bit of other food and I think that's fine. I don't think, I don't think anybody has to be on a carnivore diet. I yeah. think it's something that if your health is not where it needs to be, you know, it's like hitting a reset button yeah. if you want to use that. So yeah. like if you've been 25 years abusing your body with crap, and you're like, man, how do I fix this the most rapid way possible? Right. I mean, it, it literally is a reset switch. I mean, this kind of makes sense, and you have to talk about this in your book. So uh, you've got all these different studies that look at people going plant-based or paleo or keto or whatever, and then all of a sudden they're just cutting out a bunch of crap, right? So for somebody that's going carnivore, if you're going to cut out all the sugar, you're going to cut out all, all the bad food or your breakfast foods, whatever the hell you're having, and the cereal and stuff. So, I mean, it would make sense that your health in general, once you cut all that crap out, no matter what diet or what the hell box you want to put yourself in, you're going to get a little bit healthier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, like I said, we can argue about what people ate 50,000 years right. ago. They weren't eating Doritos and Twinkies and Honey Nut Cheerios and Those all sound bars. delicious to me. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, me too. I, I, I just I love those. Right. I, I used to them. love those and eat those things yeah. too. But 
those were not available to us. They never, even a hundred yeah. years ago, that stuff wasn't available to us. So that's not human food, yeah. I would argue. And so whether you say you, you think we ate more plants, we ate more fiber, that is all the bit. Unless we have a time machine, we're never going to figure sure. that out. So at yeah. the end of the day, you just got to test it on yourself. Okay. And I think that's probably the best thing I can tell people. So how would somebody start doing this? What, what, what are the few so steps? I think, I think there are um, a couple concerns with transition. I think one of them is trying to going from a lot of fiber to no fiber. Some people will have some GI difficulties. And mind you, this is a big misconception. You know, we did a study, kind of an informal study on 100 people on a carnivore diet for 90 days, and we tracked their stool frequency. And what it was, was about 1.2 per day. So they would have, you know, six stools every five days, right? right? So you're still going to go to the bathroom, but there's an adaptation period. And some people will have, you know, either diarrhea or constipation. So I think tapering off fiber over maybe a month Mm -hmm. seems to make sense. Uh, you know, tapering down your carbohydrates because you're going to have that energy crash if you immediately drop down. Right. And then the other thing that a lot of people don't know about or talk about are something called oxalates. And so there are a lot of oxalate-rich foods that can sometimes, because oxalates tend to accumulate in our body, most famously in, in the form of kidney stones, but they also deposit in other tissues. Those things can, once you stop eat, ingesting oxalates, and oxalates are in like leafy green vegetables, certain berries, dark chocolate, certain teas and coffees, and other foods, um, you know, legumes, potatoes, I think. Once you stop ingesting those, the diffusion gradient increases, and so that, that stuff that's in crystallized form will now go back into solute. It'll travel around your body, and sometimes it'll deposit somewhere else. And okay. so you might get a rash, you might get a joint pain, you might have urinary tract infections, and I think that, that's, that's something that occurs with oxalates. Okay. That's not super common, but it does occur. So I would tell people if you're on a high oxalate diet, and a ketogenic diet is often very high oxalate because yeah. almond flour and spinach and you know, all the stuff that they do on keto. So you have to kind of taper those things off in right. advance. And then when you get to the diet, when you get to the diet part, I tell people don't count calories, don't count macros. It's, it's really about changing your relationship with food because ultimately people have to change their relationship with food. And so instead of eating because they're stressed out or they're bored or because it's dinner time or because their neighbor told them to, or they don't want to make somebody unhappy, you eat for nutrition, you have to change your relationship with food ultimately. Because, you know, it's not that you can never eat a piece of cake again. It's just that you have to be able to be in control where you're not. If you're hungry, you know, if your physiology is saying, I'm hungry and there's a plate of cookies there, guess yeah. what? Those cookies are going to be eaten, right? Yeah, me, I'm going to eat them all. But if you're not hungry and you're physiologically able to say, I'm, yeah, I'm not that hungry, then all you need is a little bit of willpower and a little yeah. psychology. So you get to that. But, I mean, in the beginning, I tell people, count how many meals you enjoy. Make the most decadent, delicious, you know, steak and eggs, you know, hamburger with bacon and cheese and use a little bit of dairy if you need to and just make you put some spices on there, throw some hot sauce on there. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, just to help you transition out, after a period of a few weeks or months, you'll kind of say, well, I don't, man, I, I don't really like, that doesn't help me as much. Dairy doesn't help me as much. Maybe the spices are kind of messing up my guts a little bit, yeah. but you'll figure that out. And so once you get there, once you change that relationship with food, then you literally just changes your entire sort of mindset along yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, what about if they're cutting down on fiber? People are going to be really concerned about not going to the bathroom as often. And, and, and people have always talked about, like, oh, there's got this food like stuck in my digestive tract. I need to go get a colonic and, and shoot chlorophyll up my ass or all sorts of whatever the hell they're doing. <laughs> but would, people are going to be concerned about that. So how do you kind of ease their minds? Well, I mean, first of all, there's a misconception that meat is rotting in your digestive tract. Uh-huh. That, that, there's nothing farther from the truth. Meat is one of the most highly absorbable foods that we eat. I mean, you know, if if anything, fiber sits in your colon because fiber can't digest. Sugar and meat are well absorbed in the small intestine. In fact, we have studies on ileostomy patients. These are people that no longer have a colon. They've just got a little pouch and you can see what comes out. When you feed them meat, almost nothing comes out. A little tiny amount of liquid comes out. So you're not... 
it's not that food is sitting in your colon and rotting. It's just there's no waste product. It's you been know? absorbed and utilized. So it's already been absorbed and utilized. Mm-hmm. So as it contrasts that to a plant-heavy, fiber-heavy diet where almost all your nutrition ends up in the toilet. So you're paying all this high-dollar organic fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. And, you know, 50% of it's going down the toilet because yeah. you're not absorbing it. You can take a nice picture of it and send it to your Yeah, you can say, well, look, here's it. Here, they need to recycle. <laughs> this is a funny thing, you know, we had uh, because what gorillas do and other primates do is they'll actually eat their own feces because that's where they produce vitamin B12. Wow. And on a plant based diet, you, there's no vitamin B12. And so yeah. because the human colon produces vitamin B12, if you eat your own feces, you can get vitamin B12. I'm not suggesting that. Oh, man, I'm not eating my right, own shit. Right. I would yes, prefer I to eat a steak personally, okay, yeah. but, but I mean, that is an option, I suppose. Okay, well, you know, <laughs> thanks for the option. All right, one last question. Carnivore diet, fad or future? Well, I think that the carnivore diet was invented, you know, about 2 million years ago. So mm-hmm. I think it's been around for a long time. I think it is making, you know, and it has been in the public perception cyclically for a long time. I cover this in my book, you know, back to... 1700s, in fact. I mean, as far as far as we can see, even even the ancient Greeks were having a carnivore period of time. Mm-hmm. So, I do think the difference today is we have the internet, we have massive communication. Mm-hmm. So, this is not a regional thing. This is a, becoming a worldwide thing, and I think we're at a tipping point with our healthcare system. I think the healthcare system has devolved in what I like to call the disease management industry. We have so many chronically sick people and we keep putting them on pills and tell them to eat less and move more and eat the food pyramid diet and it's not working it's just not working people are getting frustrated and they're seeing these results and they're seeing these results happening in a very dramatic fashion so i suspect i mean right now it's continuing to grow i mean it's it was just fox news just had a thing on it so it's continuing to grow i think we'll see more and more people eating a larger percentage of diet coming from animal product particularly meat I think that's going to continue to stick around because these people are staying healthy. And I think the difference is so dramatic to people. I've rarely seen a person that's done the diet that has not at least stayed mostly carnivore. Okay. And I think that's powerful because, you know, you, you might try the South Beach diet or the whatever diet and you'll do it. And, and like a lot of people go on a vegan diet and, you know, a high percentage of them don't stick with it. Yeah. And they never go back to it because they're like, they, they leave it screaming. They're like, hell no, never again. But right. what I'm seeing with a carnivore diet is they'll do it for three, four months. It's the best I've ever felt. And then they're like, well, I kind of fell off the wagon. But then three months, six months later, again, when they start feeling like crap again, guess what? They go back to the carnivore diet because it's literally like the reset button. So I think I think it'll be around for, you know, I think it's here to stay. Okay. I think it's going to, I think there's going to be a significant percentage of the population that's going to do it. Now, the question is, if it turns out this is the optimal diet for people, how do we reconcile with sure. that? Because there's a lot of industry and, you know, stuff that depends upon this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think it'll, I think it'll remain a part of the human diet for the foreseeable future. Thanks for being here. Where can people find you? So I am on Instagram with Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, 1967. I'm on Twitter at SBakerMD. I've got a YouTube channel. It's just Sean Baker. We have MeetRx, which is our new website. It is a, it is a forum I spent every day. I do live chats with, my, with the members in the forum. It's the largest research library with pro-carnivore meat articles that we've got in there. We've got... Uh, We've actually got coaches that help people to transition to the diet to help them to the transition period. So those are kind of where I'm spending my time now. All right. And obviously the book is available everywhere. The book is available internationally. It's on Amazon. It's one of their best sellers. And, uh, yeah, so you can pick up a copy. Good for Christmas. Well, good for Christmas. Uh, Thanks for being here. Joy Thermos, another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Remember... Don't be a fatty. Be a part of it. Everybody laughs when I say that. Don't be a fatty. F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Take care. Do something for your health today. Cheers. Well, I tell you what. Is that having you crave meat? It very well could be. 
Next week, we have the exact opposite plant-based dietitian, Juliana Hever, and the co-author of the new book, The Healthspan Solution. Now, she's here to tell me that why it's good for eating only plants, why fruit is good for you, legumes, the exact opposite of what Dr. Baker just said. You don't want to miss next week, so tune in for my conversation with plant-based dietitian Juliana Hever. Do me a solid, share these episodes and subscribe, write a review, maybe I'll read yours on air. Cheers. Cheers.